as we've been looking at the book of James, what he's doing in his writing is he is speaking to get us to examine our lives, to examine, first of all, whether or not, as we looked at last week, whether or not our faith is real. And what he means by that is, is it real to the point that people who do not yet know Jesus Christ would look at you and look at me, see our lives, and say, there's something about them that's different. There's something about how they live, how they conduct themselves, that looks to be like there's a transformation that's happened in their life. He uses some some marks that we looked at last week to be able to examine whether or not it looks real from the outside. Now, this week, he's going to dig a little deeper. And so it's going to get a little more difficult in our own hearts if we allow the Holy Spirit to really use the word to open them up. Because he's not going to find out whether or not it looks real on the outside, but whether or not it is dead or alive on the inside. So let's go back for just a moment. We're going to look at uh, we're going to review what we looked at last week, the, the marks of whether or not our religion is real, whether or not what we um, proclaim with our mouths matches with what we live in such a way that others look and see Jesus Christ living in us, our real faith. He gives us four marks that reveal whether or not ultimately we're living in union with Christ, if we're connected to him. And what is so convicting about what James writes is the verses just before what Preston read, he talks about a a reminder that if we break the law, any one of the law, um, any of the Ten Commandments or the other laws that are there, we're guilty of all of it. In the same way, if I miss the mark on one of these things, um, it's giving evidence that there's something wrong in my relationship with God. Something isn't real, and I'm not giving evidence to others that others could see that I have a real faith. And he gives us these four marks. The first one was to control your conversation. What you say with your mouth reveals the condition of your heart. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, control his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, I'm going to give you a warning ahead of time, and maybe no one will show up next week. Chapter 3 is all about the tongue, okay? So if it feels uncomfortable now, come next week and allow God to do some great work in your life and in my life, okay? Just, but just know it's a warning. It's going to get a little ugly, uh, although I do have a really cool prop for next week. So maybe that will help balance it out. Um, I'm hoping it will work, work well. But here's the thing that we need to think about and remember. What the world around us sees or hears about Jesus Christ is what we say. And if we're not controlling what we say with our mouths and what we post in social media, we're not going to present the true message of the gospel. They're going to see something that's hypocritical, that's critical towards others, and that is not reflecting a transformation of Christ's life. Secondly, James says the second mark that ought to be able to be seen in your life and my life about whether our faith is real is if we're practicing care for those in need. 
He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And, and widows and orphans are representative. It's not just those two groups. It would include those who are, who've been driven out, who are impoverished. It would include refugees, those who um, have been driven out of their, their land. We need to make sure that we're showing authentic, genuine love to them. The third mark that James gave us was to guard our character and Christ's reputation. He says in the rest of the verse, keep oneself unstained from the world. We need to look differently than everyone around us, than what the culture says. And then fourthly, was that you cannot show favoritism or prejudice as a believer. Understand this, when we judge a person, we are judging their maker. To judge the creature is to judge the creator. So if I look at a particular group, whether it's rich or poor, or whether it's an ethnic difference or a cultural difference, a racial difference, when I look at that and judge it with my own heart, I'm judging the very God who made them and Jesus Christ who gave his life to save them. There is no room whatsoever, ever, in the church for prejudice, ever. Doesn't matter how we grew up, doesn't matter the backgrounds that we come from, it matters what God's word says. So he gives us those indicators to to look at it because those are the things that everybody else is going to say. They're going to see what's happening in your life with your tongue. They're going to see how you treat others, how you care for those in need. They're going to see our prejudices And they're going to judge whether or not our faith is real. But then James digs a little deeper in the passage that we just read to examine whether or not we have a dead theology or a living faith. Now I want you to really ask the Lord to open up your heart because we can know all kinds of things about God and not intimately know Him as Savior and as Lord. That's what he tells us. Look at, let's look at what it says again in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He starts with a great question, and he's asking you and I, is your, safe, excuse me, is your faith giving evidence that you're really saved? Because saying you're a Christian is not enough. Saying that I'm not something else, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not an agnostic, I'm not whatever, isn't enough. See, it's got to be real. Now, I want to clarify something that that, um, we need to make sure we understand here. James is not in any way saying that we are saved by what we do. We are saved by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, in His grace, and our efforts do not save us whatsoever. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is the one, he who has done the work. But if that salvation is real, there should be a transformation that happens in us. Because a faith that does not transform us is not a faith that can save us. Does that make sense? If there's not change that's happened on the inside, then why should you ever believe that you have a real relationship with Christ? There's a danger that's here. 
He's trying to say that if you just say it, if you're just identifying yourself, if you have a say-so faith that is not reinforced by a transformed life and actions of controlling the tongue, showing compassion to those in need, being unstained by the world, and not showing favoritism, if those actions aren't being brought forth in your life, then the faith that you say you have is not real. It's not alive. It's dead. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it really well, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. That is a huge statement. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. If we are unchanged by the good news we say we believe, then our faith is only information. And here's the thing. We live in a world where what is popular to believe is that education will make everything better. Education is a wonderful thing, but information in itself cannot save you or I ever. It takes trusting in the work of God himself and Jesus Christ, what he has done in order for us to have a real relationship with him. If Jesus, and, and it comes down ultimately the, to this. If Jesus is not Lord of my life, if his word does not command obedience and then I follow it, um, it shows that I don't have a living faith, that my faith that I say I have is actually dead. There's been no rebirth. We've not been born again, as Jesus puts it in his own words. Well, secondly, and only says, it's not just about what you say, it's about how you live he goes on and gives a very practical example to, to, for us to understand that if our faith is alive, it will move us to action every single time. Now, now here's the thing about this. We can have real faith, but sometimes our faith gets passive. It begins to become selfish. It kind of gets, gets arthritis. As I get older and I can move less and less, I appreciate some of the, the, the imagery even that's in, this, in the Scripture because what he's saying here is he's prompting us to make sure that we're living out that faith. Not that it's just happened once or twice, but that we're actually pursuing it. We're pursuing a faith that moves us to action. And here's how he puts it. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace... Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I can say all the right things. I can sound super spiritual and churchy. I can, you know, just say, oh, bless your heart. Um, yeah, and that sounds so good. But if I'm not following that up by investing in the person's life, it's not real. It's not alive. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? Because what God is wanting to remind us through James is that you and I are his representatives right here and now. Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit to live within us so that we would live like him here and now and touch the lives of others so that they would see the reality of who he is. Saying the right things is not enough. 
Talking about mercy is not enough. Show mercy. Show grace. In fact, what I want to challenge us to do is to practice a radical generosity. One thing that, that in our years of, of marriage together and faith together, we have discovered very clearly is that you cannot outgive God. The more we give away, of ourselves, of the things God has blessed us with, of the resources he's given us, the more resources he gives us because he multiplies what he wants to do in us and through us. And so if this is an area where you're struggling, where you're a bit stingy, ask the Lord to prompt you into obedience and begin to practice a radical generosity, give away things. And, and let me tell you this, give away good things. Don't, don't give junk if it's not something you'd like to receive, it probably goes in the trash can, not in the donation bin, okay? Give away that which is good, that which is best. And let me tell you one of the reasons why. It's not about what you get from it, but when you do, you will receive incredible joy. What it really is, is reflecting what God has given to us. I have recognized that I am incredibly, incredibly wealthy compared to most of the world around me. And God has used a a number of different situations in very poor areas of the world to, to bring me to a clear understanding of the abundance God has given me. But he's entrusted me with that abundance because he wants me to practice a radical generosity that reflects the generous God that we have. He's inviting you and I into his work. And so we need to to see and look for others who are in need and say, Lord, how do you want to use me to touch them? If we're united with Christ, then we are his presence in the world. We are his presence in our families. We are his presence in our neighborhoods. We are his presence in the workplace and in the marketplace. And so he has resourced us to be able to show his love and a radical generosity to others around us. Now, understand that that is not convenient. When we practice a radical generosity, when we practice a love like God did for us, it will be messy. It will be inconvenient. You will be taken advantage of in, in, in many cases, but that's okay. How was Jesus treated? Jesus heals 10 lepers. Out of those 10, how many came back and even said thank you? One. His motivation wasn't the response of others. His motivation was to display the glory, greatness, and generosity of God. That's what we're to do. Even though it's messy. But here's what will happen. As we begin to practice it, God's going to do a work on our heart. You're going to begin to feel more and more the burdens and needs of others, of people around you. It's going to hurt. A lot of great motivation I'm giving you right now, isn't it? But it's it's a good hurt. Here's why it's a good hurt. is because God is allowing you to feel His heart, His love for other people. When we put our faith into action and begin to say, Lord, would you show me how you want to use me this day? 
If our faith is alive, the Holy Spirit will prompt us to action, and He will call us to invest ourselves in the needs of both friends and strangers. And so there, are, there come times when we need to ask ourselves, would Jesus walk past that person that I just saw? What would He do? How would He respond? How would He get involved in their heart and in their life, in their need? Listen to a couple of other passages in the Scripture that talk about this. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul just reminds us, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All of the New Testament writers prompt us to the same kind of action, the same kind of response to live out our faith with a radical generosity of doing good to those around us, beginning with other believers, but touching the hearts and lives of those who do not yet know Christ and those who are strangers. Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 25, gave seven different actions of ways that we could share our love for him by loving and touching others. Matthew 25, 37 through 40. Then the righteous will answer Jesus. This is a, a, the parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, the righteous will answer, answer him, which is Jesus, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I have to believe that James, when he's writing here, when he says, when you see a a needy person and you say, you simply give them words instead of give them acts, he's thinking back to the very words of his half-brother Jesus that he wrote here in Matthew. And he gave Seven expressions of his love that the world around us desperately needs to see. We need to be the ones who feed the hungry and, drink, and give drink to the thirsty. We need to be the ones who welcome the stranger, the sojourner, the refugee. We need to be the ones who clothe those who, who are naked, who visit those who are in prison, who care for those who are sick, who befriend sinners, and who side with the least, with the weak, with the afflicted. That's what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. It means we inherit His work. Jesus came to set captives free. He came to the poor. He came to make a difference in this life. He came and did those outward actions so that it could be a bridge to reach to the very deepest need, which is the fact that you and I and all those around us have been separated from God because of our sin, but God provided a generous, amazing solution in that he himself bore our sin and died in our place to give us salvation. But if people around us don't see our works, they will never hear our message. They will never eventually see Christ. Now, we can't do those works in our own strength. That has to be the Holy Spirit that works in us. But Jesus said that his followers would do greater works than he did. He meant that he would multiply his work through us. A living faith will produce actions Paul put it this way in summary. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, doesn't matter your religion. This was the dividing point between Jews and Gentiles. Doesn't matter what that background is, but only faith working through love. That's what counts. What counts is a living faith that works through love. So, how's your faith? If you're, if you're allowing God right now to, to open up your heart and look at it, how is it doing? If it's like mine, kind of been passive and selfish, would you ask Him to make your heart soft? The Lord did that to me this week, week in, a, in a way. I, I don't know what to do with this yet, but he, he opened my eyes up to see something from a different perspective. I was walking to, um, to the Bridge Center, to where our office is, and, and of course, Vesmechka Street is a street filled with brothels, and, and, and so you always see interesting things on Vesmechka. Um, but this time, I was walking in front of the, the Darling Cabaret, and um, it doesn't sound good when your pastor is walking in front of brothels, does it? But I do it every day, so there you go. Um, I, I don't go inside, just in case you were wondering. But I'm walking, and there's a lady standing out front right by the door of, of the diamond. And, and honestly, you don't see the ladies very often because they, they kind of go in and out on their shifts at, at odd times. And there's also a back door, especially to the, to, to the diamond. But here, there was a, a woman standing there with her, her pram with her, and her child. And it just struck me in a way that it hadn't hit me before because I know many of these who are working in, in these clubs, in these brothels, are moms. And I just began to think, what are they doing for their child care? I, I don't know if that was a woman going into work and she was going to take her child in with her, or if she was dropping the child off for someone else, or she was meeting someone. I, don't, I have no idea why she was there. But it just reminded me of a, of a need in their heart and their life, and I began to began to convict my own heart to say, because I've been praying, Lord, how do we reach those who have been trafficked, you know, in sex trafficking? Some of them, they're there not by choice. Some of them are there by choice, but they're still a prisoner. Maybe that's a way that we can reach and show the love of Christ to them. I don't know, but I'd ask you to pray with us about that. Is there a way that we could, we could do that? Because that's a huge need. Here's an innocent child going in a brothel. I need to do something about that because I know the Lord allowed me to see that for a reason. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm praying that it, he, he won't let it go, that He won't relent until He brings me to the point of obedience that I need to arrive at. For you, it may be something different, but God is going to show you how to be His hands and His feet to live your faith in a powerful way. Well, James goes on and he gets, gets even harder, if it could. He wants us to know that right belief is not enough. Having the right theology is good. We need to learn as much as we can about God or about His Word as possible. But knowing the right things about God in and of itself is not enough. Look how he says, James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, by the things that I do. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, those are sobering, sobering words. You can believe all the right things and still not have a living faith. Ultimately, our faith is expressed in a cross. Because if we have faith in God, it will produce a love for God um, that is vertical. We're connected to to a a passion for God. We want to honor Him. But that desire of a real faith for God to please Him and to love Him will always be expressed in a horizontal love for others. It's It's just a reality. It's the kind of love that God shows towards us. But we can have all the right beliefs and still have a dead faith. I want you to think about the point that he's making here when he says, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you realize that the demons have far clearer understanding of theology than you or I? They were there at the beginning. They've seen God do incredible things. But their knowledge, their information that they have does not lead them to the point of saving faith. Demons are not atheists. They are not skeptics. There are no agnostics among the ranks. In fact, there's not even any liberal demons who doubt the truth. If we look at what the scripture says, he starts off here, James, with saying, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe that. This is a reference to the Shema in Deuteronomy. It's what the Jews would pray every single day, multiple times a day, um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would begin with that understanding that he is, he is a full unity. He is complete in his wholeness, in his oneness. That this is who he is. He's saying the demons believe that. They understand that. What's more, if we look at the teachings of the New Testament and we see the interactions especially of Jesus Christ with the demons, we discover that demons believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, when they saw Jesus, they bowed down and cried out, you are the Son of God. The demons know the right identity of Jesus. They know his human name. In Luke chapter 4, verse 34, they cry out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? They know his divine origin. In Luke 4, 34, they also says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know he is the Christ, the Anointed One. They recognize true, the true preaching of the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, verse 17, the demon cries out and says, These men are servants of the Most God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Their theology is good. And it's better than ours. It says, not only do they believe, that they shudder. Do you realize that even though it is very popular in our world and our culture to deny Hell as an, as an existence, the demons do not deny the existence of hell. I 
Understand, whatever its physical conditions are, there may be some debate about exactly what it's like. Let me tell you the reality of hell, its greatest torment and terror is this. It is a void or absence of the grace of God. Where God's grace is completely shut off from the heart and life of that which he has created, that is the worst place in all of the universe. The physical torment that occurs there will pale in comparison to the total separation from God. And the demons understand that. I want to give you some scriptures that help you to understand that. Luke chapter 8 verse 31 tells us that they believe in hell. The demons infesting the man from the tombs begged Jesus not to send them to the abyss, the place of final judgment. They acknowledge Jesus as their ultimate judge. The same demons beg Jesus not to torment them in Mark chapter 5 or 7. They also believe that there is a time set for their punishment. Matthew chapter 8 verse 29, they ask Jesus, have you come to punish us before our time? They understand the reality that they are lost. But that doesn't save them. They do not place their trust in the one who gave his life for us. Now, there's some theological reasons why angels, after they fall, cannot be saved um, that we don't need to get into. But the reality is they have a good theology and it doesn't save them. R.C. Sproul puts it, he says it this way, Satan could make an A in systematic theology course better than any of our students. He knows all the information. He knows the information is true. But it does not save us. Theology itself cannot save you. A personal faith, trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us, His sacrifice, and that He is Lord of lords and King of kings, that is our salvation. So right belief is not enough. Our faith must command our lives. And and understand, James, in his context, who is he writing to? He's not writing to the world out there. He's writing to the church. He's writing to you and I to get us to examine whether or not our faith is alive. or Whether it is simply a facade where we think we have a relationship, but we don't. He's talking to church people, Bible-believing people. He's thinking about pastors and elders and deacons and worship leaders and ushers and Sunday school teachers and children's workers and youth leaders and everybody else in the church. You can be a Bible-believing pastor with all the accreditation that you might receive from education. You can preach orthodox theology, and still your faith can be dead. That's a sobering thought. My faith is dead if I talk without caring. That's what James is telling us. My faith is dead if I preach without loving. My faith is dead if I talk about the Bible without applying it first and foremost to my own life. My faith is dead if I pray on Sunday, but I do not show compassion on Monday. Now, here's the good news, the great news. Wherever we are, 
This truth needs to resound in your heart. The Lord will meet you where you are. Whether you are the most moral person and yet you've discovered that all you have is information and not a saving faith, or whether you're an immoral person and you're in desperate need and you're crying out to God, it does not matter. God will meet you where you are. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. His coming to earth, his incarnation, his work and his ministry was to communicate to us that God will meet us right where we are. But there's a second part of that truth. And it is, it is the part that ultimately really gives us hope is that he will not leave us where we are. He will transform us. That's the message and the beauty of the gospel is that God came and while we were his enemies, he died for us. He meets us right where we are, but he won't leave us there if we come to him and say, Lord, save me. And James goes on and and he gives us two examples of transformed life. Two examples of living faith that are kind of the opposite extremes when it comes to looking at them from the outside. He gives the example of Abraham and the example of Rahab. Abraham is Jewish. In fact, he's the, he's the father of the faith. And um, he's, in, he's incredibly well-respected by um, all religious people, for that matter, but especially by the Jews and by the church that he's writing to. And then Rahab is a Gentile whose profession was a prostitute. Kind of from the outside looking at it, seems like opposite ends, but he's saying, look what happened. Look at the transformation that happened in their life when they put their faith in the living God. James gives us these two testimonies. What, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, and I love it that he that he uses that phrase, in the same way, the same transformation, transforming faith, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A living faith transformed both of them into lives of action. And God had a beautiful plan for both Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, the father of the faith. Rahab, who was brought into the lineage of Jesus. She's the great-grandmother of King David, or great-great-grandmother of King David. Her identity, her life was transformed because she placed her faith in the living God. All these things James is doing to say, if you're going to live the royal law, which is kind of the main point of the whole message of James, he says in James 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And here's what it looks like. 
On both sides of that statement, he is giving us the ways to measure our faith. Well, the royal law looks back to the law that Jesus gave, the new commandment in John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I want to wrap up with just four little actions that um, I'm asking the Lord to help me remember in order to live my faith. Listen, give, respect, and serve. And they're all really reflections of what James is teaching here. They're the measurements that he uses. He told us to be quick to listen. What God calls us to do, if we're to live out our faith, if it's to, to, to give evidence that it's real, We need to listen to the stories of the people around us. Get involved in their life. Discover their need. Find out how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in their life. Secondly, give to bless them. Look for ways to practice radical generosity towards others as God has poured out generosity on us. James says, reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. God is the source, and He is an infinite source. He will always supply the needs, especially as we are serving Him and giving to others in a way that reflects His greatness and His goodness. Thirdly, respect others. James warns us against partiality. We need to respect others for the value that God places on them. And lastly, to serve their needs, to care for the practical needs of those who are afflicted, who are poor, who are needy. If we do those things, if we look with eyes that see and allow our hearts to feel, God will take the faith if it's real, and he'll bring it to life and produce works that point people to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not sure, you're not sure whether you have a real faith, maybe you've you've discovered, I have a lot of information, but I don't know that I have faith. All he does is ask us to call upon his name. You can turn from where you are in trusting in yourself, trusting in your knowledge, trusting in your religion, to trusting in Christ by saying, Jesus, save me. I need you personally. And his promise is, he will meet you right where you are, draw you to himself, give you a new life, and transform you. For those of us who have that, let us make sure we're putting it into action. We're going to sing a closing song that really speaks as as an expression of, Lord, I want to live it. I want my faith to be alive. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for making me uncomfortable with your scripture. And now, Lord, I ask that you would help us to obey your spirit, to go from this place prompted to live out our faith in ways that bring honor to you and show others 
that you really are our Lord, our Savior, our hope. It is in the great and mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.